I was plainly a musical child. Uh, I was very much interested in how um, musical instruments worked. Uh, if someone would put one in front of me, I would immediately try to make some sort of sound with it. I, uh, I had a RCA 45 player, it was a pretty common record player that um, a lot of people had. It had a 45 spindle and you could stack up maybe about an inch worth of singles onto it. And my parents provided a bunch of um, light classical recordings by the Boston Pops and some similar sort of things, like Skater's Waltz and Chicken Reel and that sort of thing. And I would listen to the music for hours and the vinyl was different colors of clear vinyl. It would be red or blue or yellow or green and I would look through them various combinations, put a yellow one over one eye and a red one over the other. <clears throat> so I always kind of associated music and visuals in a way. My grandmother had a um, an old piano up in her attic. Um, she actually bought a building and the piano was in it. But she never played, nobody in my family played, but I would go up there whenever we'd visit my grandmother and just bang away on it, improvising, thinking that it was, you know, just the most wonderful symphonic arrangements coming spontaneously out of my fingers. But as soon as we returned home, I had no piano at home, so I didn't develop any particular discipline on the on the instrument. We had uh, music programs in our elementary school where you could rent an instrument and once a week someone would, ostensibly once a week someone would come around and give you a lesson, although I think they showed up a lot more rarely than that. But the first instrument I thought I wanted to get trained on was a flute. But there were a number of challenges to the flute. One was the embouchure, the developing the shape of your mouth so you can make a sound come out of it. The other was that it's um, a counterintuitive instrument. It's not, it's not played linearly either in terms of the fingering or in terms of how you hold it. So you have to sort of think differently than you do with uh, with other instruments, for instance, the clarinet or the saxophone, which is vertical rather than horizontal. And my sister picked up the clarinet or thought that she wanted to play the clarinet and I started learning how to play it when she wasn't using it and eventually I just kind of, she was just doing the lessons and I was copying Mr. Ackerbilk from off the radio, which thrilled my dad. I could play Two Strangers on the Shore just from memory and figuring out the fingering. But um, I really took to the guitar eventually. Uh, those other instruments, as much as I liked the sound of them and would have liked to have learned how to play them better, just weren't hip. Um, 
the guitar was the instrument that everyone seemed to be gravitating towards. There was the Ventures and Dwayne Eddy and, and plenty of instrumental groups who feature the guitar as a principal instrument. So I talked my parents into getting me guitar lessons at the local music store, which offered a Korean-made acoustic guitar for $25 if you would take like three months worth of lessons. It was a truly awful instrument. I mean, just barely playable, but I suffered through the pain of developing calluses on it and started picking out melodies. First thing I picked out, I believe, was the Christmas song by the Chipmunks. And then I learned how to play Walk, Don't Run by the Ventures, all, of course, by ear. I, um, I suffered through the lessons for uh, three months. The teacher was somewhat impressed with the progress I was making, but I was not actually paying much attention to what was on the paper. He wanted me to learn how to read music at the same time I was learning how to play the instrument. So after three months, I was happy to stop the lessons and I never bothered to learn how to read music. Um, I was too adept at picking melodies out by ear. I at one point thought I could figure out how to write music. So I got some ruled paper and tried to transcribe stuff that I heard off of other records, particularly classical records. I was very interested in picking the parts of, out of it and seeing what the various lines that went into making the whole sound. So I, I did something like Richard Rogers' Slaughter on 10th Avenue or something as a first project that I didn't get very far. It was very you know, it was meticulous and, and requires small motor skills and things like that. And I kind of lost interest in approaching music that way and got just more and more into playing the guitar. Um, I wasn't really thinking that much about, at least early on when I just had my acoustic guitar, not thinking that much about performance. And I think the only time I ever played in public was at uh, like a sixth grade um, dance lesson thing that they held after school in preparation for us going to, on to junior high school and presumably going to dances and socializing and stuff. So I got up the gumption to play and sing Lonesome Town by Ricky Nelson and the only thing I remember from the gig was that someone threw a balled up napkin at me and it went right into the guitar hole. And I was just stunned at the accuracy of the, of the pelting. But beyond that, I was, didn't like catch a bug and want to, ha want to have to perform in front of people. But then eventually the Beatles happened and I realized this guitar playing thing, it has some potential. I managed to pester my parents into getting me an uh, electric guitar, but they never bought an amp to go with it, so I was always dependent on someone else to provide the amplification. And the electric guitar made less sound than the acoustic guitar when it wasn't plugged in, so 
I did sort of dabble with it, but it wasn't until a little bit later that I decided I was going to audition to get into bands. Never had a lot of luck. I was not particularly socially graceful and while I could play the things that I had already taught myself, it was often not the same things that the guys who were forming bands wanted to hear. So after a while, I decided I'll just form what everybody else does. I'll form a band with my best friend who essentially had an amp in the form of the, uh, of the family 16 speaker stereo console, which he took apart and reinstalled inside of a rolling case with uh, about a, I think maybe six or eight inputs, a little mixer on the back of it. So we would put two guitars, a bass, and a vocal mic all through the same amplifier. But it made it, you know, simple to set up. All we had to do was roll that thing in. And we played some local dances, and I think we actually got paid to do a fraternity party once. And then uh, we met a guy in the neighborhood who was very much into the blues. His name was Rick Valenti, and he turned us on to um, the Paul Butterfield Blues Band and uh, Junior Wells and uh, a bunch of other blues things. And so I started collecting blues records. Blues was a music that was made by and for guitars, so it suddenly had a whole new perspective. And while I was into the Beatles and working out all of George Harrison's melodic little lines that were obligatory in any Beatles song, I started to get more into bands like uh, the Yardbirds, who were a factory for uh, English guitar players. And so at that point, I more or less committed to becoming a blues rock guitar player and started imitating all these other guitar players like Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton and Michael Bloomfield and ultimately my style, whatever that was, was a combination of those guitar players that I was listening to. A couple others, maybe Harvey Mandel and, uh, and uh, well, not a whole lot of, um, of proto-blues um, players. There was a trend in those early days for people who used to play folk music and might have played blues and folk music to think that they could just immediately transition like Bob Dylan did into electrified music. And some of them made the most unbluesy blues <laughs> that you could possibly hear. Uh, eventually, uh, high school graduation came around. My friend went off to college. The band broke up. I was more or less on the street, hooked up with a drummer friend of mine uh, in Ocean City, New Jersey. Nothing happened there, but he and I eventually went to see a local band that had caused some noise. They were called Woody's Truck Stop. And they were playing um, a tent show with uh, the birds and the shadows of night but we especially wanted to see Woody's truck stop. And 
they essentially went crazy on stage. You know, they played some blues, but they didn't play any slow blues. They played all up-tempo stuff, and we were really into the band, so decided that we would go see them at their regular Philadelphia venue, which was a club called the Artist Hut and held less than 100 people and was underground, kind of like the Cavern Club. And my friend was a really good drummer. The band was looking for a drummer, so they said, okay, why don't you audition here in the club while we're, you know, during the next set. They loved him, and he said, well, I'm with this other guy. And uh, they said, okay, well, we'll let him be in the band because that'll make the lineup just like Paul Butterfield's band. Bunch of white guys, mostly white guys, playing the blues with a handsome front man and two guitar players, keyboards, bass, and drums. Woody's Truck Stop started out as a blues band, but at some point someone brought over a record by the Grateful Dead and everyone in the band who had proclivities to take whatever the latest drug was decided that they wanted to become a San Francisco-style jam band and go to the country and get their heads together, which meant go to the country and take acid and try and write, I guess. so. Uh, I was not into that and I left the band. And I was still rooming at the time with Carson Van Austin, who was the original bass player in Woody's Truck Stop. So we schemed together to, you know, raid a couple of the local bands for a drummer and a front man and decided that we would be some combination of The Who and uh, the Who and the Beach Boys, which sounds strange until you realize what a big fan of the Beach Boys, um, mem certain members of the Who were, so Keith Moon especially. But um, So we raided the, the local bands, uh, started playing locally, had to do a lot of covers, played strange places like former strip clubs and bars that really weren't looking for the kind of music we were playing, but it was what was happening, so they thought they would give it a try. One night we went to see The Who play a gig, opening up for the Mamas and Papas, if you can believe that, and found out that the band was staying at the Holiday Inn in downtown Philadelphia, so me and the drummer decided that we would go down and see if we could find anyone in the band and, and fanboy them. And we did find Roger Daltrey in the bar, and so we started chatting him up, as they say. And uh, and while we're doing that, a guy comes over, kind of an older guy, and he says, "Are you guys in a band?" Which and we said yes because we always went to some trouble to look like we were in a band. And he said, "I'm looking for a band to promote, to discover, essentially." And so. That was when the NAS got discovered in the bar at the Holiday Inn in Philadelphia. We auditioned for, um, for John Curlin, the guy who approached us the next day. He and his partner decided that we were what they were looking for and they whisked us off to New York. Where we started writing and rehearsing and auditioning in uh, every record label studio in New York City and eventually got signed.